calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Warning, this week's story has a few brief moments of animal suffering in it. Nothing bad, and there's a good balance of human suffering too, but I know how it is. Screw humans. Just thought I'd throw it out there. Welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 338. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Couple quick announcements here first. You might recall a few episodes back in episode 333 where I announced a writing contest that we were running called the Cat with Blue Fur Contest. The details to that I went into further on the episode, but basically it's a flash fiction contest and the only stipulation is that it has to have, somewhere in it, a cat with blue fur. We've got one more week where we're taking submissions. That all closes on September 15th, so get your submissions in there. You can find details and post your stories right there in our discussion forums at forums.drabblecast.org. And secondly, hey, want to be in an upcoming Drabblecast story? Like an actual character reading an actual line? It's not as hard or as involved as it may sound. It's just a fun thing we're doing here this month to get fans involved. We've got an upcoming story set and plotted on a radio show, getting lots of crazy call-ins. So we set up a Drabblecast Skype voicemail account for the story with an actual phone number that you can call and act out one of the lines that callers make to be worked into the actual story production. How fun will that be? Each Friday, starting this Friday, September 12th, I'm going to tweet out and also post on Facebook a new line up for grabs for the story for you to call in and read, act out for our voicemail. Leave as many takes as you want. I've got nothing better to do. I'm just f***ing Norm Sherman. Just playing. Follow the Drabblecast on Twitter, at the Drabblecast. Join our Facebook page. It'll be fun. Go for it. Hell, let's start things off now. Why not? The first line from a call-in in the story that we're casting everyday listeners with by taking their call-in voice messages is, 
How you doing, Mike? Just wondering if you caught that ball game last night. That's it. How you doing, Mike? Just wondering if you caught that ball game last night. The Drabblecast voice message box is at 410-929-7743. That's 410-929-7743. Call in. Leave that line acted out as a message. You might appear in the story. Once more, the number is 410-929-7743. All right, on to the actual show this week. We've got an epic, solid production of a great Arctic adventure story you're gonna love. But it gets me thinking. Why do people sometimes put themselves at great risk for the incentive of discovery, knowledge, of seeing or finding something new? Why would you ever leave the comfort of your couch for all that silliness when somewhere there's a Kardashian saying something on the TV and you're not there to hear it, and you're also not prepared to deal with the profound philosophical implications of if the Kardashian therefore made any sounds at all? It's just too much to deal with. You've heard the story of Sir Ernest Henry Shackleton, right? The famous explorer who was the first guy to cross Antarctica. It's pretty incredible. About six months into his trip, his ship, the HMS Endurance, got itself permanently wedged between two huge-ass ice floes. Shackleton and his crew of 28 tried to extricate the vessel by doing everything from hacking the ice with axes to gunning the engine like a pickup truck stuck in the mud. But nothing was successful. The crew waited out the entire winter for months, braving freezing sub-zero temperatures, 70-plus mile-per-hour winds, and a stretch of 70 days where the sun didn't rise. And on October 27, 1915, the hull integrity of the Endurance finally compromised, and the crew had to abandon ship, watching it be crushed by the ice and sink to the bottom of the sea with a collective, oh shit. The crew was stranded on an ice floe with only what they were able to salvage from the ship. Food, stores, sledges, and three smaller ships, which they hauled across the ice for four freaking months. But on April 9th, the ice floes they were traveling on cracked in half, and they were forced into their boats to avoid death by getting eaten by goddamn orcas or something. The boats braved dangerous icebergs and finally landed on Elephant Island a few days later. But it doesn't end there. Oh no. Shackleton left most of his crew there, set out with a small party to travel to a whaling station on South Georgia Island. He set off in a tiny 20-foot boat, braving storms, freezing temperatures, tidal waves, and wind gales, as he traversed 800 miles of open ocean in only 14 days in a not-quite-at-all seaworthy vessel. When he finally landed at South Georgia Island, though, sadly, he landed on the wrong side of the island from the station. So he embarked on an epic 36-hour trip where he became the first man to cross the 4,500-foot-tall snow-covered mountain range that bisected the island. Finally, he reached the station and was able to charter a ship to go back to Elephant Island and save his men. All 28 crew members survived the two-year expedition from hell, which is pretty amazing when you think about it. But maybe it's just as amazing that 28 people actually signed up for that shit in the first place. The ad they responded to in the paper, the real ad that Shackleton put out at the time, was this. 
Men wanted for hazardous journey. Low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete and utter darkness. Safe return, doubtful. Honor and recognition and mad props in event of success. Ernest Shackleton, 4 Burlington Street. Sign me up, you crazy mother I mean, this is the first guy to get out there and see that there was even more f***ing ice out there. This week on the show, and maybe as a bit of an encore to last month's H.P. Lovecraft Tribute Month, we look at the explorer and the truth seeker. Let's start things off with a hundred word story. This week's 100 word drabble is called The World's Eye Looks at a Small Peruvian Village by four member Unseen Tangerine. And here it is. 2014 World Records Largest Head For the past 22 years, Lupe Zaragoza has had the largest head in the world. What's it like to hold such an unusual record, we asked her. If you imagine what the largest head in the world might look like, you would still be surprised when you saw this one, she boasted. When she's not busy, Lupe enjoys exploring the rugged mountains near her home in South America. It was on one of these hikes that she found the head. It was so big, it took us three days to get it down the mountain. And that leads us to our story this week, The Crevasse by Dale Bailey and Nathan Ballingrude. Dale was born in West Virginia in 1968 and grew up in a town called Princeton, just north of the Virginia line. His stories have appeared in lots of places, the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, Asimov's Amazing Stories, Science Fiction, Lightspeed, and The Drabblecast. Several of them have been nominated for awards, and his story, Death and Suffrage, later filmed as part of Showtime's television anthology series, Masters of Horror, won the International Horror Guild Award. Nathan Ballingrude is an American writer of horror and dark fiction. His first book, the short story collection, North American Lake Monsters, was published earlier this year by Small Beer Press to great acclaim. Awards and honors include a Shirley Jackson Award for his story, The Monsters of Heaven, as well as multiple reprints in year's best anthologies. His work has appeared in Naked City, Tales of Urban Fantasy, Lovecraft Unbound, where this week's story first appeared, and Inferno, New Tales of Terror, among other publications. The story's guest produced this week by Fred Greenhow. If you'll remember the sponsorship last year we did of his post-apocalyptic audio drama, The Cleansed, season two is now complete and available as a free podcast streaming on SoundCloud, or as an as-free audiobook experience through Audible or Downpour. It's good stuff. Fred is pretty much the sound effect guru in my book when it comes to stories that are produced in full audio, and sound effects are a tricky thing to do right. Way more often than not, they wind up being timed wrong or sounding inauthentic or otherwise distracting and therefore detracting from the listening experience. But Fred's a huge nerd when it comes to audio production and sound effects in particular, and he does it upright. Stick around after our story this week, hear Fred talk a little bit about putting the story 
together in a producer's note, and also a promo for an upcoming gothic-slash-steampunk project he's got coming out on Halloween, called A Journey with Strange Bedfellows. Sounds really interesting. Reading the story is Rich Fish, radio actor, producer, and promoter based in Bloomington, Indiana. He's currently working as acquisitions manager for Audio Cinema Entertainment, who is working on a new audio drama subscription service to be launched in 2015. So, without further ado, we bring you The Crevasse by Dale Bailey and Nathan Ballingrude. What he loved was the silence, the pristine clarity of the ice shelf, the purposeful breathing of the dogs straining against their traces, the hiss of the runners, the opalescent arc of the sky. Garner peered through shifting veils of snow at the endless sweep of glacial terrain before him, the wind gnawing at him forcing him to reach up periodically and scrape at the thin crust of ice that clung to the edges of his face mask, the dry rasp of the fabric against his face reminding him that he was alive. There were fourteen of them. Four men, one of them, Faber, strapped to the back of Garner's sledge, mostly unconscious but occasionally surfacing out of the morphine depths to moan. Ten dogs, big Greenland huskies, gray and white. Two sledges. And the silence, scouring him of memory and desire, hollowing him out inside. It was what he'd come to Antarctica for. And then, abruptly, the silence split open like a wound, a thunderous crack loud as lightning-cleaving stone, shivered the ice, and the dogs of the lead sledge, maybe 25 yards ahead of Garner, erupted into panicky cries. Garner saw it happen. The lead sledge sloughed over, hurling Connolly into the snow, and plunged nose-first through the ice, as though an enormous hand had reached up through the earth to snatch it under. Startled, he watched an instant longer, the wrecked sledge, jutting out of the earth like a broken stone, hurtled closer, closer. Then time stuttered, leaping forward. Garner flung one of the brakes out behind him. The hook skittered over the ice. Garner felt the jolt in his spine when it caught. Rope sang out behind him, arresting his momentum. But it wouldn't be enough. Garner flung out a second brake, then another. The hook snagged jerking the sledge around and up on a single runner. For a moment, Garner thought that it was going to roll, dragging the dogs along behind it. Then the airborne runners slammed back to earth, and the sledge skidded to a stop in a glittering spray of ice. Dogs boiled back into its shadow, howling and snapping. Ignoring them, Garner clambered free. He glanced back at Faber, still miraculously strapped to the travoy, his face ashen. And then he pelted toward the wrecked sledge, dodging a minefield of spilled cargo, food and tents, cooking gear, his medical bag disgorging a bright freight of tools 
and the few precious ampules of morphine McReady had been willing to spare, like a fan of scattered diamonds. The wrecked sledge hung precariously, canted on a lip of ice above a black crevasse. As Garner stood there, it slipped an inch, and then another, dragged down by the weight of the dogs. He could hear them whining, claws scrabbling as they strained against harnesses drawn taut by the weight of Atka, the lead dog, dangling out of sight beyond the edge of the abyss. Garner visualized him, thrashing against his tack in a black well as the jagged circle of grayish light above shrank away inch by lurching inch, and he felt the pull of night inside himself, the age-old gravity of the dark. Then a hand closed around his ankle. Bishop, clinging to the ice, a hand slip away from tumbling into the crevasse himself, face blanched, eyes red-rimmed inside his goggles. Come on! Shit! Here! He reached down, locked his hand around Bishop's wrist, and hauled him up, boots slipping. Momentum carried him over backwards, floundering in the snow as Bishop curled fetal beside him. You, you okay? My ankle. Here, let me, let me see. Not now. Connolly. What happened to Connolly? He fell off. With a metallic screech, the sledge broke loose. It slid a foot, a foot and a half, and then it hung up. The dogs screamed. Garner had never heard a dog make a noise like that. He didn't know dogs could make a noise like that. And for a moment, their blind, inarticulate terror swam through him. He thought again of Atka, dangling there, turning, feet clawing at the darkness. And he felt something stir inside him once again. Steady, man. Garner drew in a long breath, icy air lacerating his lungs. You gotta be steady now, Doc. You gotta go. Cut him loose. No. We're gonna lose the sledge and the rest of the team. That happens, we're all gonna die out here, okay? I'm busted up right now. I, I need you to do this thing. What about Colonel? Not now. Doc, listen to me. We don't have time, okay? Bishop held his gaze. Garner tried to look away, could not. The other man's eyes fixed him. Okay. Garner stood and stumbled away, went to his knees to dig through the wreckage, flung aside a sack of rice frozen in clumps, wrenched open a crate of flares, useless, shoved it aside and dragged another one toward him. This time he was lucky. He dug out a coil of rope, a hammer, a handful of pitons. The sledge lurched on its lip of ice, the rear end swinging, setting off another round of whimpering. Hurry! Garner drove the pitons deep into the permafrost and threaded the rope through their eyes, 
his hands stiff inside his gloves. Lashing the other end around his waist, he edged back onto the broken ice shelf. It shifted underneath him, creaking. The sledge shuddered, but held. Below him, beyond the moiling clump of dogs, he could see the leather trace leads stretched taut across the jagged rim of the abyss. He dropped back, letting the rope out as he descended. The world fell away above him, down and down, and then he was on his knees at the very edge of the shelf, the hot, rank stink of the dogs enveloping him. He used his teeth to loosen one glove. Working quickly against the icy assault of the elements, he fumbled his knife out of its sheath and pressed the blade to the first of the traces. He sawed at it until the leather separated with a snap. Adka's weight shifted in the darkness below him, and the dog howled mournfully. Garner set to work on the second trace, felt it let go. Everything, the sledge, the terrified dog, slipping toward darkness. For a moment he thought the whole thing would go, but it held. He went to work on the third trace, gone loose now by some trick of tension. It, too, separated beneath his blade, and he once again felt Atka's weight shift in the well of darkness beneath him. Garner peered into the blackness. He could see the dim blur of the dog, could feel its dumb terror welling up around him, and as he brought the blade to the final trace, a painstakingly erected dike gave way in his mind. Memory flooded through him. The feel of mangled flesh beneath his fingers. The distant whoop of artillery. Elizabeth's drawn and somber face. His fingers faltered. Tears blinded him. The sledge shifted above him as Atka thrashed in his harness. Still, he hesitated. The rope creaked under the strain of additional weight. Ice rained down around him. Garner looked up to see Connolly working his way, hand over hand, down the rope. Do it! Connolly's eyes were like chips of flint. Cut him loose! Garner's fingers loosened around the hilt of the blade. He felt the tug of the dark at his feet. Atka whining. Give me the goddamn knife! Connolly wrenched it away, and together they clung there on the single narrow thread of gray rope, two men and one knife, and the enormous gulf of the sky overhead, as Connolly sawed savagely at the last of the traces. It held for a moment, and then abruptly it gave, loose ends curling back and away from the blade. Atka fell howling into darkness. They made camp. The traces of the lead sledge had to be untangled and repaired. The dogs tended to. The weight redistributed to account for Atka's loss. 
While Connolly busied himself with these chores, Garner stabilized Faber. The blood had frozen to a black crust inside the makeshift splint Garner had applied yesterday, after the accident, and wrapped Bishop's ankle. These were automatic actions. Serving in France, he'd learned the trick of letting his body work while his mind traveled to other places. It had been crucial to keeping his sanity during the war, when the people brought to him for treatment had been butchered by German submachine guns or burned and blistered by mustard gas. He worked to save those men, though it was hopeless work. Mankind had acquired an appetite for dying. Doctors had become shepherds to the process. Surrounded by screams and spilled blood, he'd anchored himself to memories of his wife, Elizabeth, the warmth of her kitchen back home in Boston, and the warmth of her body, too. But all that was gone. Now, when he let his mind wander, it went to dark places, and he found himself concentrating instead on the minutiae of these rote tasks, like a first-year medical student. He cut a length of bandage and applied a compression wrap to Bishop's exposed ankle, covering both ankle and foot in careful figure eights. He kept his mind in the moment, listening to the harsh labor of their lungs and the frigid air, to Connolly's chained fury as he worked at the traces, and to the muffled sounds of the dogs as they burrowed into the snow to rest. And he listened, too, to Atka's distant cries, leaking from the crevasse like blood. Can't believe that dog's still alive. Bishop tested his ankle against his weight. He grimaced and sat down in a crate. He's a tough old bastard. Garner imagined Elizabeth's face, drawn tight with pain and determination while he fought a war on the far side of the ocean. Was she afraid, too, suspended over her own dark hollow? Did she cry out for him? Help me with this tent! They'd broken off from the main body of the expedition to bring Faber back to one of the supply depots on the Ross ice shelf, where Garner could care for him. They would wait there for the remainder of the expedition, which suited Garner just fine, but troubled both Bishop and Connolly, who had higher aspirations for their time here. Nightfall was still a month away, but if they were going to camp here while they made repairs, they would need the tents to harvest warmth. Connolly approached as they drove pegs into the permafrost, his eyes impassive as they swept over Faber, still tied down to the Travoy, locked inside a morphine dream. He regarded Bishop's ankle and asked him how it was. It'll do. It'll have to. How are the dogs? We need to start figuring what we can do without. We're going to have to leave some stuff behind. We're only down one dog. Shouldn't be too hard to compensate. We're down two. One of the swing dogs snapped her foreleg. 
Connolly opened one of the bags lashed to the rear sledge, removing an army-issue revolver. So go ahead and figure what we don't need. I gotta tend to her. He tossed a contemptuous glance at Garner. Don't worry, I won't ask you to do it. Garner watched as Connolly approached the injured dog, lying away from the others in the snow. She licked obsessively at her broken leg. As Connolly approached, she looked up at him, and her tail wagged weakly. Connolly aimed the pistol and fired a bullet through her head. The shot made a flat, inconsequential sound, swallowed up by the vastness of the open plain. Garner turned away, emotion surging through him with a surprising, disorienting energy. Bishop met his gaze and offered a rueful smile. Bad day. Still, Atka whimpered. Garner lay wakeful, staring at the canvas, taut and smooth as the interior of an egg above him. Faber moaned, calling out after some fever phantom. Garner almost envied the man. Not the injury, a nasty compound fracture of the femur, the product of a bad step on the ice when he'd stepped outside the circle of tents to piss, but the sweet oblivion of the morphine doze. In France, in the war, he'd known plenty of doctors who'd used the stuff to chase away the night haunts. He'd also seen the fevered agony of withdrawal. He had no wish to experience that, but he felt the opiate lure all the same. He'd felt it then, when he'd had thoughts of Elizabeth to sustain him, and he felt it now, stronger still, when he didn't. Elizabeth had fallen victim to the greatest cosmic prank of all time, the flu that had swept across the world in the spring and summer of 1918, as if the bloody abattoir in the trenches hadn't been evidence enough of humanity's divine disfavor. That's what Elizabeth had called it in the last letter he'd ever had from her. God's judgment on a world gone mad. Garner had given up on God by then. He'd packed away the Bible Elizabeth had pressed upon him after a week in the field hospital, knowing that its paltry lies could bring him no comfort in the face of such horror. And it hadn't. Not then, and not later, when he'd come home to face Elizabeth's mute and barren grave. Garner had taken McReady's offer to accompany the expedition soon after, and though he'd stowed the Bible in his gear before he left, he hadn't opened it since, and he wouldn't open it here either, lying sleepless beside a man who might yet die because he'd had to take a piss. Yet another grand cosmic joke, in a place so hellish and forsaken that even Elizabeth's God could find no purchase here. There could be no God in such a place. Just the relentless shriek of the wind tearing at the flimsy canvas, and the death howl 
agony of the dog. Just emptiness and the unyielding porcelain dome of the polar sky. Garner sat up, breathing heavily. Faber muttered under his breath. Garner leaned over the injured man, the stench of fever hot in his nostrils. He smoothed Faber's hair back from his forehead and studied the leg, swollen tight as a sausage inside the sealskin legging. Garner didn't like to think what he might see if he slid open that sausage to reveal the leg underneath, the vicious pit of the wound itself, crimson lines of sepsis twining around Faber's thigh like a malevolent vine as they climbed inexorably toward his heart. Atka howled, a long rising cry that broke into pitiful yelps died away and renewed itself like the shriek of sirens on the French front. Jesus! He fished a flask out of his pack and allowed himself a single swallow of whiskey. Then he sat in the dark, listening to the mournful lament of the dog, his mind filling with hospital images the red splash of tissue in a steel tray, the inflamed wound of an amputation, the hand folding itself into an outraged fist as the arm fell away. He thought of Elizabeth, too. Elizabeth, most of all, buried months before Garner had gotten back from Europe. And he thought of Connolly, that aggrieved look as he turned away to deal with the injured swing dog. Don't worry, I won't ask you to do it. Crouching in the low tent, Garner dressed. He shoved a flashlight into his jacket, shouldered aside the tent flap, and leaned into the wind tearing across the waist. The crevasse lay before him. Rope still trailing through the pitons to dangle into the pit below. Garner felt the pull of darkness. And Atka screaming. Okay, all right. I'm coming. Once again, he lashed the rope around his waist. This time he didn't hesitate as he backed out onto the ledge of creaking ice. Hand over hand he went backward and down, boots scuffing until he stepped into space and hung suspended in a well of shadow. Panic seized him, the black certainty that nothing lay beneath him. The crevasse yawned under his feet like a wedge of vacuum driven into the heart of the planet. Then, below him, ten feet, twenty, mm. Atka mule piteous as a freshly whelped pup, eyes squeezed shut against the light. Garner thought of the dog, curled in agony upon some shelf of subterranean ice, and began to lower himself into the pit, darkness rising to envelop him. One heartbeat, and then another, 
and another, and another, his breath diaphanous in the gloom, his boots scrabbling for solid ground, scrabbling and finding it. Garner clung to the rope, testing the surface with his weight. It held. Garner took the flashlight from his jacket and switched it on. Atka peered up at him, brown eyes iridescent with pain. The dog's legs twisted underneath it, and its tail wagged feebly. Blood glistened at its muzzle. As he moved closer, Garner saw that a dagger of bone had pierced its torso, unveiling the slick yellow gleam of subcutaneous fat and, deeper still, half visible through tufts of coarse fur, the bloody pulse of viscera. And it had shat itself. Garner could smell it, a thin gruel congealing on the dank stone. Okay, okay, Atka. Kneeling, Garner caressed the dog. It growled and subsided, surrendering to his ministrations. Good boy, Atka. Settle down, boy. Garner slid his knife free of its sheath, bent forward, and brought the blade to the dog's throat. Atka whimpered. Shh, shh, shh. He bore down with the edge, steeling himself against the thing he was about to do. Something moved in the darkness beneath him, a leathery rasp, the echoing clatter of stone on stone, of loose pebbles tumbling into darkness. Atka whimpered again, legs twitching as he tried to shove himself back against the wall. Garner, startled, shoved the blade forward. Atka's neck unseamed itself in a welter of black arterial blood. The dog stiffened, shuddered once, and died. Garner watched its eyes dim in the space of a single heartbeat. And once again, something shifted in the darkness at Garner's back. Garner scuttled backward, slamming his shoulders into the wall by Atka's corpse. He froze there probing the darkness. Then, when nothing came, had he imagined it? He must have imagined it. Garner aimed the flashlight into the gloom. His breath caught in his throat. He shoved himself erect in amazement, the rope pooling at his feet. Vast! The place was vast! Walls of naked stone climbing in cathedral arcs to the undersurface of the polar plain and a floor worn smooth as glass over long ages stretching out before him until it dropped away into an abyss of darkness. Struck dumb with terror, or was it wonder, Garner stumbled forward the rope unspooling behind him until he drew up at the precipice, pointed the light into the shadows before him, and saw what it was that he had discovered. A stairwell, 
cut seamlessly into the stone itself. And no human stairwell either. Each riser fell away three feet or more, the stair itself winding endlessly into fathomless depths of earth, down and down and down until it curved away beyond the reach of his frail human light, and further still towards some awful destination he scarcely dared imagine. Garner felt the lure and hunger of the place singing in his bones, something deep inside him, some mute, inarticulate longing cried out in response, and before he knew it, he found himself scrambling down the first riser and then another, the flashlight carving slices out of the darkness to reveal a bas-relief of inhuman creatures lunging at him in glimpses, taloned feet and clawed hands and sinuous medusa coils that seemed to writhe about one another in the fitful and imperfect glare. And through it all, the terrible summons of the place, drawing him down into the dark. <sighs> Elizabeth! He stumbled down another riser, and another, until the rope, forgotten, jerked taut about his waist. He looked up at the pale circle of Connolly's face, far above him. What the hell are you doing down there, Doc? And then, almost against his will, Garner found himself ascending once again into the light. No sooner had he gained his footing then Connolly grabbed him by the collar and swung him to the ground. Garner scrabbled for purchase in the snow, but Connolly kicked him back down again, his blonde, bearded face contorted in range. You stupid son of a bitch! Do you care if we all die out here? Get off me! For a dog! For a goddamn dog! Connolly tried to kick him again, but Garner grabbed his foot and rolled, bringing the other man down on top of him. The two of them grappled in the snow, their heavy coats and gloves making any real damage all but impossible. The flaps to one of the tents opened, and Bishop limped out, his face a caricature of alarm. He was buttoning his coat even as he approached. Stop! Stop it right now! Garner clambered to his feet, staggered backward a few steps. Connolly rose to one knee, leaning over and panting. He pointed at Garner. I found him in a crevasse. He went down alone. Garner leaned against one of the packed sledges. He could feel Bishop watching him as he tugged free a glove to poke at a tender spot on his face. But he didn't look up. Is this true? Of course it's true. Bishop waved him into silence. Garner looked up, breath heaving in his lungs. You've got to see it. My God, Bishop! Bishop turned his gaze to the crevasse, where he saw the pitons and the rope spilling into the darkness. Oh, Doc. It's not a crevasse, Bishop. It's a stairwell. Connolly strode toward Garner, jabbing his finger at him. What? You lost your goddamn mind! Look for yourself! Bishop interposed himself between the two men. Enough! Back off! But... I said, back off! 
Connolly peeled his lips back, then turned and stalked back toward the crevasse. He knelt by its edge and started hauling up the rope. Bishop turned to Garner. Explain yourself. All at once, Garner's passion drained from him. He felt a wash of exhaustion. His muscles ached. How could he explain this to him? How could he explain this so that they'd understand? Atka! I could hear him! A look of deep regret fell over Bishop's face. Doc! Atka was just a dog. We have to get Faber to the depot. I could still hear him. You have to pull yourself together. There are real lives at stake here. Do you get that? Me and Connolly, we aren't doctors. Faber needs you. But do you get that? I... Yeah. Yeah, I know. When you go down into places like that. Especially by yourself. You're putting us all at risk. What are we going to do without Doc, huh? This was not an argument Garner would win. Not this way. So he grabbed Bishop by the arm and led him toward the crevasse. Look! Bishop wrenched his arm free, his face darkening. Connolly straightened, watching this exchange. Don't put your hands on me, Doc. Garner released him. Bishop, please! Bishop paused a moment and walked toward the opening. All right. Oh, for Christ's sake! We're not going inside it. I'm going to look, okay, Doc? That's all you get. Garner nodded. Okay. The two of them approached the edge of the crevasse. Closer, Garner felt it like a hook in his liver tugging him down. It took an act of will to stop at the edge, to remain still and unshaken, and look at these other two men as if his whole life did not hinge upon this moment. It's a stairwell. His voice did not shake. His body did not move. It's carved into the rock. It's got designs of some kind. Bishop peered down into the darkness for a long moment. I don't see anything. I'm telling you, it's there. Garner stopped and gathered himself in. He tried another tack. This, this could be the scientific discovery of the century. You want to stick it to McReady? Let him plant his little flag. This is evidence of... of... He trailed off. He didn't know what it was evidence of. <sighs> we'll mark the location. We'll come back. If what you say is true, it's not going anywhere. Garner switched on his flashlight. Look! He threw it down. The flashlight arced end over end, its white beams slicing through the darkness with a scalpel's clean efficiency, illuminating flashes of hewn rock and what might have been carvings or just natural irregularities. 
It clattered to a landing beside the corpse of the dog, casting in bright relief its open jaw and lolling tongue and the black pool of blood beneath it. Bishop looked for a moment and shook his head. God damn it, Doc. You're really straining my patience. Come on. Bishop was about to turn away when Atka's body jerked once Garner saw it, and then again, almost imperceptibly. Reaching out, Garner seized Bishop's sleeve. What now, for Christ? <gasps> Bishop's voice, harsh with annoyance, cut off as the body was yanked into the surrounding darkness so quickly it seemed as though it had vanished into thin air. Only its blood, a smeared trail into shadow, testified to its ever having been there at all. That, and the jostled flashlight, which rolled in a lazy half-circle, its unobstructed light spearing first into empty darkness and then into smooth, cold stone, before settling at last on what might have been a carven, clawed foot. The beam flickered and went out. What the fuck? The scream erupted from the tent behind them. Faber. Garner broke into a clumsy run, high-stepping through the piled snow. The other men shouted behind him, but their words were lost in the wind and in his own hard breathing. His body was moving according to its training, but his mind was pinned like a writhing insect in the hole behind him, in the stark, burning image of what he had just seen. He was transported by fear and adrenaline and by something else, by some other emotion he had not felt in many years, or perhaps ever in his life, some heart-filling, glorious exaltation that threatened to snuff him out like a dying cinder. Faber was sitting upright in the tent, its stank of sweat and urine and kerosene, eye-watering and sharp, his hair a dark corona around his head, his skin as pale as a cavefish. He was still trying to scream, but his voice had broken, and his utmost effort could now produce only a long, cracked wheeze, which seemed forced through his throat like steel wool. His legs stuck out of the blanket, still grossly swollen. The warmth from the Nansen cooker was almost oppressive. Garner dropped to his knees beside him and tried to ease him back down into his sleeping bag, but Faber resisted. He fixed his eyes on Garner, his painful wheeze trailing into silence. Hooking his fingers in Garner's collar, he pulled him close, so close that Garner could smell the sour taint of his breath. Faber, relax, relax. <coughs> Faber's voice locked. He swallowed and tried again. It laid an egg in me. Bishop and Connolly crowded through the tent flap, and Garner felt suddenly hemmed in, overwhelmed by the heat and the stink and the 
steam rising in wisps from their clothes as they pushed closer, staring down at Faber. What's going on? Is he all right? Faber eyed them wildly. Ignoring them, Garner placed his hands on Faber's cheeks and turned his head toward him. Look at me, Faber. Look at me. What do you mean? Faber found a way to smile. In my dream, it put my head inside its body and and it laid an egg in me. <laughs> He's delirious. See what happens when you leave him alone. Garner fished an ampule of morphine out of his bag. Faber saw what he was doing and his body bucked. No! No! His leg thrashed out, knocking over the Nansen cooker. Cursing, Connolly dove at the overturned stove, but it was already too late. Kerosene splashed over the blankets and supplies, engulfing the tent in flames. The men moved in a sudden tangle of panic. Bishop stumbled back out of the tent, and Connolly shoved Garner aside. Garner rolled over on his back and came to rest there as he lunged for Faber's legs, dragging him backward. Screaming, Faber clutched at the ground to resist, but Connolly was too strong. A moment later, Faber was gone, dragging a smoldering rucksack with him. Still inside the tent, Garner lay back, watching as the fire spread hungrily along the roof, dropping tongues of flame onto the ground, onto his own body. Garner closed his eyes as the heat gathered him up like a furnace-hearted lover. What he felt, though, was not the fire's heat, but the cool breath of underground earth, the silence of the deep tomb buried beneath the ice shelf. The stairs descended before him, and at the bottom he heard a noise again. A woman's voice calling for him, wondering where he was. Garner, where have you been? Oh, Elizabeth, are you there? If only he'd gotten to see her, he thought. If only he'd gotten to bury her to fill those beautiful eyes with dirt, to cover her in darkness. Elizabeth, can you hear me? Then Connolly's big arms enveloped him, and he felt the heat again, searing bands of pain around his legs and chest. It was like being wrapped in a star. I ought to let you burn, you stupid son of a bitch! He lugged Garner outside. Garner opened his eyes in time to see the canvas part in front of him like fiery curtains and dumped him in the snow instead. The pain went away briefly, and Garner mourned its passing. He rolled over and lifted his head. Connolly stood over him, his face twisted in disgust. Behind him, the tent flickered and burned like a dropped torch. Faber's quavering voice hung over it all, rising and falling like the wind. Connolly tossed an ampule and a syringe onto the ground by Garner. Faber's legs opened up again. Go and do your job. Garner climbed slowly to his feet. 
feeling the skin on his chest and legs tighten. He'd been burned. He'd have to wait until he'd tended to Faber to find out how badly. And then help us pack up! Bishop led the dogs to their harnesses. We're getting the hell out of here! By the time they reached the depot, Faber was dead. Connolly spat into the snow and turned away to unhitch the dogs, while Garner and Bishop went inside and started a fire. Bishop started water boiling for coffee. Garner unpacked their bedclothes and dressed the cots, moving gingerly. Once the place was warm enough, he undressed and surveyed the burn damage. It would leave scars. The next morning, they wrapped Faber's body and packed it in an ice locker. After that, they settled in to wait. The ship would not return for a month yet, and though McReady's expedition was due back before then, the vagaries of Antarctic experience made that a tenuous proposition at best. In any case, they were stuck with each other for some time yet, and not even the generous stocks of the depot, a relative wealth of food and medical supplies, playing cards and books, could fully distract them from their grievances. In the days that followed, Connolly managed to bank his anger at Garner, but it would not take much to set it off again, so Garner tried to keep a low profile. As with the trenches in France, corpses were easy to explain in Antarctica. A couple of weeks into that empty expanse of time, while Connolly dozed on his cot and Bishop read through an old natural history magazine, Garner decided to risk broaching the subject of what had happened in the crevasse. He didn't want to wake Connolly. You saw it. Bishop took a moment to acknowledge that he'd heard him. Finally, he tilted the magazine away and sighed. <sighs> so what? You know what? Bishop shook his head. No, I don't. I don't know what you're talking about. Something was there. Bishop said nothing. He lifted the magazine again, but his eyes were still. Something was down there. No, there wasn't. It pulled Atka. I know you saw it. Bishop refused to look at him. <sighs> this is an empty place. There's nothing here. He blinked and turned a page in the magazine. Nothing. Garner leaned back onto his cot, looking at the ceiling. Although the long Antarctic day had not yet finished, it was shading into dusk, the sun hovering over the horizon like a great boiling eye. It cast long shadows, and the lamp Bishop had lit to read by set them dancing. 
Garner watched them caper across the ceiling. Sometime later, Bishop snuffed out the lamp and dragged the curtains over the windows, consigning them all to darkness. With it, Garner felt something like peace stir inside him. He let it move through him in waves. He felt it ebb and flow with each slow pulse of his heart. A gust of wind scattered fine crystals of snow against the window, and he found himself wondering what the night would be like in this cold country. He imagined the sky dissolving to reveal the hard vault of stars, the galaxy turning above him like a cog in a vast, unknowable engine, and behind it all, the emptiness into which men hurled their prayers. It occurred to him that he could leave now, walk out into the long twilight, and keep going until the earth opened beneath him and he found himself descending strange stairs while the world around him broke silently into snow and into night. Garner closed his eyes. All right, and this is Fred Greenhalge of Final Room Productions chiming in from the woods of Maine, which serves as my studio, as it were. Um, I have been a long lover of stories, but uh, last eight years or so, it has been uh, telling stories uniquely with sound that has been my passion, uh, what we've been doing at Final Room Productions, starting with uh, short stories that were just piling up and not having a home, started turning them into radio scripts. Um, the first story, Day of the Dead, uh, was based on my experiences in New Orleans, and had, I had captured a lot of sounds there in 2003 to 2005 when I lived there. Uh, and as trying to find a way to articulate it, I found that making a movie was just too hard and the footage was complete madness. But if I sort of built a sound portrait that uh, the story could come to life in a very unique way, um, as, as well as the use of actors uh, to really enliven the sense of scene and mood. Um, and that continued on. I uh, did several scary, spooky stories and some funny stories and some uh, fantasy stories and all sorts of other stuff as we've developed over the years and now actually adapting my first uh, novel, which again was going nowhere, but uh, turned it into audio and that adventure has been The Cleansed. Uh, Norm has spoken kindly about The Cleansed here on the Drabblecast before. And I've also been a huge fan of the Drabblecast since 2009. So um, seeing the stars were aligned, uh, Norm asked me to do a show uh, for the Drabblecast and I do hope you enjoy the result of that effort, The Crevasse. Uh, so, that story, uh, there were a few that uh, Norm ran by me, but something about this real sharp and crunchy language uh, throughout the piece, the snarling of the uh, sled dogs and the uh, sort of grating, ever-present sound of the wind, as well as uh, Garner's sort of inner life um, and his sort of reaching out for Elizabeth, just uh, really uh, very, very sound-textured piece, uh, sort of a, a melody in the harshness um, of the language, the spareness of the language, and uh, that is what we tried to not overdo, uh, but to sort of exemplify in sound. So it's not like every single 
moment uh, was underscored or amplified, but uh, throughout uh, trying to sort of help build that portrait in your mind. So I hope you enjoyed that effort. Um, this sort of one uh, piece, once we got this back from the narrator, we had a you know hour-long narration and, and sort of trying to build that soundscape. The first thing I did was lay down the ever-present sound of the wind um, that was recorded here in Maine in the middle of winter. This is spot would snow would be above my knees and the wind uh, whips through and I have recorded that several times and sort of put on the strong loop of this uh, brutal winter wind. Uh, I'm from there just sort of uh, listening to the piece, letting it breathe, adding sound effects. Uh, the dog certainly wanted to have that throughout, but if you've ever been with a sled dog team, um, though he talks about the silence, I think there's actually quite a bit of noise on a sled dog. So uh, we sort of added a few signatures of that. Some of that actually was my own dog who snarls and snorts with the best of them. Um, others were uh, husky recordings, both from uh, Inuit territories as well as the London Zoo. <laughs> That's where the saddest one I found was actually. So you just sort of start with uh, your your dialogue and then you sort of let the story build up from there. And um, as you you know, amass a larger sound library, you get more stuff to play with. I've always been a passionate believer in collecting my own sounds as much as possible. Um, have a pretty interesting eclectic library by now, carrying a small recorder with me everywhere I go and capturing interesting sounds. And it's been a huge pleasure to be on the Drabblecast. Hope we get to do it again soon. Uh, Norm will tell you all about the cool stuff I'm doing. We have an amazingly awesome secret project that I cannot tell you about, but if I did, I'd have to lock you up and throw away the key. And we also have, for Halloween, this gothic piece, uh, Journey with Strange Medfellows. Um, and we'll mention that as well, a-strange-journey.com. And again, I'm Fred, Final Rune Productions, finalrune.com. My series is The Cleansed. That night, faith gave old Geibel inspiration that gave rise to innovation. The fates, however, did not grant me even a brief conversation with faith that evening as I worked to bolster my courage over the following year. The old toy maker labored on the greatest of his creations, and he completed it for Annette's 18th birthday ball, which was much the same as the year prior, but for one event. Old Geibel brought with him a clockwork man. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, the clockwork man dipped his head sharply to acknowledge the crowd. Good evening, Lieutenant Prince, at your service. Just a minor adjustment or two, yes, sir. Uh, which one of you ladies will be first to dance with him? He keeps a perfect time, never tires. He won't tread on your toes, and he will hold you only as firmly as you desire. <laughs> he will delight you with genteel conversation. He can't be everything you say he is, Uncle. Faith approached the mechanical man and gently stroked his metallic cheek. Oh, but he is, dear cousin. Though he is neither flesh nor bone, in one way he is superior. He cannot suffer the torments of a broken heart or love's lost. Oh, perfect indeed! <laughs> Can't wait. All right, folks, let's close this bad boy out this week with our weekly 100-character story winner. This week, by forum member, Unreliable Narrator. Here goes. Mm.
My sister just read a book about Stockholm Syndrome. She said it was pretty bad at first, but by the end, she kind of liked it. Excellent. And for the record, that was our most retweeted 100-character story in the history of doing this weekly contest for the past six years. Over 650 retweets and about 575 favorites in just the first 24 hours. Congrats, Unreliable Narrator, for breaking a new record and attaining twit-fix supremacy. Aren't you glad I begged you to keep writing twabbles? Wink, wink. All right, folks, that's our show this week. Remember, the Travelcast is produced with a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Special thanks to our episode artist this week, Hannah Holloway. And wow, look at that episode art this week, folks. Looks just like a movie cover. Hannah's a freelance illustrator and pharmacy student who enjoys blending her love of magic, monsters, and medical science into stories. Her work can be found at heholloway.com and at Hannah Carbons on Twitter and Tumblr. Our program is brought to you this week by managing editor Nathan Lee, our art director Bo Kyer, with additional help from Tom Baker, David Carvin, Nikki Drayden, and David Steffen. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, this is Norm Sherman reminding you... Something is down there. I know you saw it. It moved.
Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.